You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Billy Joel once wrote a song, and I'll just give a couple of quotes. You're having a hard time, and lately you don't feel so good. You're getting a bad reputation in your neighborhood. It's all right. It's all right. Sometimes that's what it takes. Say it with me. You're only human. You're allowed to make your share of mistakes. And then it goes on and it says, Till that old second wind comes along, you probably don't want to hear advice from someone else, but I wouldn't be telling you if I hadn't been there myself. It's all right. It's all right. Sometimes that's all it takes. Say it with me. We're only human. We're supposed to make mistakes. I'm only human. That's what we say. It's a phrase we say to explain our weaknesses. Maybe even in an apologetic way, justify actions that we aren't maybe proud of or that we aren't what we know weren't necessarily healthy. And here's the thing about this whole thing. There's, there's plenty of theology that, that began surfacing around the 16th century that helped the church develop this low view of, of human nature, this idea that to be human is to be prone to mistakes. Thanks to the likes of John Calvin and Martin Luther and others, we inherited this idea that our human bodies, and therefore our human lives, are so depraved that there's nothing good that can come from them. Yet that's not what the early church understood the Scriptures to teach about being human. Maybe it was the words of another song that convinced them there was something more to being human than just a depraved mortality. Listen to King David's words in his song. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You made your glory higher than heaven. From the mouths of nursing babies, you have laid a strong foundation because of your foes in order to stop vengeful enemies. When I look up at your skies, at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? Read this with me. You've made them only slightly less than divine, crowning them with glory and grandeur. You've let them rule over your handiwork, putting everything under their feet, all sheep, all cattle, the wild animals too, the birds in the sky, the fish of the ocean, everything that travels the pathway of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. That doesn't sound like a low view of humanity to me. You've made them slightly less than divine. Crown them with glory. In grandeur. Irenaeus is an early church leader in the Bishop of Lyons in Asia Minor. He was a Turkish man, born around 125 AD, died around 200. He said, The glory of God is a living human being. And maybe he really understood what it meant for a humanity to be made in the image of God. Because of all creation, only humanity was made in the image of God. But he saw something in his Turkish body 
and his darker-skinned Turkish body, he saw something in humanity. Now, Irenaeus, who knew Polycarp, who studied at the feet of John the Apostle, would have been well-learned if in the way of the apostles, would have understood humanity. He'd have been well-learned in the things of Jesus, so much so that when this battle, then this sort of doctrine called Gnosticism, say Gnosticism, Gnosticism was a sort of older way of seeing the world that started working its way into the church. It came through Judaism into the church. Gnosticism, say Gnosticism. Well, make sure you get this. Paul has to deal with this in the Scriptures. It's actually dealt with in the Scriptures. Gnosticism is this view of humanity that the soul is perfect, but it's trapped in this material body. And so Gnosticism, along with many other beliefs that I'm not going to get into, I've given you some stuff on the Uversion app there if you want to look at it, but Gnosticism believes that the divine souls being trapped in the ordinary physical are being basically in a bodily prison that the body itself and physical, material things are just lesser, lesser things. And the body is a lesser thing, because you know it gets hungry and it dies. It's a lesser thing. And this Gnosticism took its roots from Plato. Say Plato. That's with a T, Plato, not Play-Doh. When I was little, I used to say Plato. Plato, Plato in 5 BC, taught the world. He was this Greek who taught the world. Jesus would have learned from the teachings of Plato. Everyone learned from the teachings of Plato. Plato had the same view, that essentially the material things, the body itself, was lesser than the soul and then knowledge. That's where gnosis, gnosis, that's where it comes from, knowledge. That knowledge in the soul has a higher value than the body and material things. And this view of this disembodied life we inherited from maybe Plato and Gnosticism. Where do you think we get heaven as some sort of disembodied, soulless existence where we float around in clouds, wearing a cloth diaper, playing a harp? Right? Like this disembodied sort of idea of heaven, that heaven is over there, wherever there is. There are no animals in heaven, except for dogs. That's what we say. Like, there are no animals there. We would even, we're serious about that stuff, too, aren't we? We're serious about this idea of a disembodied existence. The problem is this disembodied existence created disembodied existences now. And if you want to know why I'm talking about this, beyond hopefully the obvious, let me tell you. When we take on a view of the world that has a lesser than view, and we see human bodies as lesser than souls, it has profound consequences in our world. You want to know what the consequences are? The Crusades. Slavery and genocide. You can do whatever you want to, to bodies. Abortion and infanticide. You get Hitler, who believed that the Jewish body of Jesus wasn't really a body at all, because who, after all, would be God to come and put on a real body, because bodies are just broken material things. See, Irenaeus had to fight against this idea of God coming to us in some sort of immaterial presence. Do you understand what I'm saying? The early church struggled with 
the idea that God would come as the material embodied one, and that if God was really God and the body was really the body, why would God, who is immortality, put on mortality? Who is perfection, put on imperfection? And this became a thing. And it became a thing so much so that it created injustices and brokenness in this world. I'll tell you how else we get consequences from this. The idea that Christians are dual citizens of two political kingdoms, one spiritual and one physical, is Gnosticism. The idea that there's a spiritual and that there's a devaluation of physical by dividing our lives into secular and sacred is a stream of Gnosticism. The idea that there's a focus on moral behavior and a devaluation of neighborly behavior behavior is just a form of Gnosticism. A tendency to compartmentalize our lives into categories like spiritual life, work life, family life is a strange sort of version of Gnosticism. And all of this has led to divided minds and restless souls and disordered loves. And consequently, we've sometimes missed the fullness of God revealed to us in the person of Jesus. All these little consequences of Gnosticism, of this disembodied faith or this devaluation of the human body, we'll talk a little bit more about the next couple of weeks as we close this thing out. We'll talk more about these consequences that they've created of compartmentalizing our lives to genocidal movements in our world. But for now, what I want to do is just encourage us to think differently, to renew our minds in the human body the beautiful human body. See, Paul believed that there wasn't a question of whether or not God put on a body. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, say it with me. All the fullness of deity lives in Christ's body. Although, how much, how much of God? Deity? All? How much is all? It's just all. And how much is full? It's full. Notice that Paul didn't say some of the fullness, or like a little bit of. Like he says, all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. Does Paul say immaterial bodily form? No, he, he means literally in the language, he means bodily. He means body, a real body, a human body. A darker-skinned Jewish, Palestinian Jewish man's body. Not a white dude's body. Blonde hair and blue eyes. But a body. And then he says, and you have been filled by him who is the head of every ruler and authority. And the problem is if we have a devaluation of bodies and a low view of human beings, then I wonder if we're leaving a little fullness on the table that we've been filled with. See, just before Paul wrote this, he wrote this. He said, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the Perfect reflection. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else and He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body. Oh, there's a different body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. For God in all his fullness 
was pleased to live in Christ. And through Him, God reconciled everything from the blades of the grass to the hairs on our heads, everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. The Apostle Paul wants us to know that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one who issued the Ten Commandments, including the one who said, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of idols, has come to us in the person of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. This means Jesus, the embodied Jesus, is Lord. This also means God places a very high value on the created world. The physical world as we know it. And of course, human beings. You can know how much God loves and values creation in our physical world by remembering that He created it. That's why creation care matters. It's not some agenda. It's faithfulness. You can know how much God loves and values humanity because He became one. That's why every living body matters. And if we really got this, if you're sitting there going, well, this is what we're talking about this morning, then how do you love your neighbor? And how do you love your enemy? Does your love of neighbor and enemy demonstrate a value of their humanity? Do we applaud at the death of others? Do we make human bodies an argument to be had over a political position or even a doctrinal position? See, Jesus Christ is embodied one. He's the stone that the builders rejected, and He's become the cornerstone. He's the Lord, and therefore He's our Redeemer, our great high priest and mediator of the new covenant. He's our advocate, our victorious king, our day star, our light of the world, our prince of peace. And as John the Apostle taught us, God had so much to say to the world, so much to say to the world that He loves, that He couldn't say it in the collection of pages any longer. He had to say it in the form of a person. Jesus is, as John said, the Word of God made flesh. And He is what God has to say to humanity. And you can know how much God loves and values creation in our physical world because He created it. And you can know how much God loves and values humanity because He became one. God became human. A dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish man living in Galilee. And the Scriptures tell us that God came to us in this dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body and preached in the synagogues and demonstrated the presence of God's kingdom in Galilean neighborhoods. The Scriptures tell us that in this dark-skinned Jewish body, God proclaimed forgiveness of sins and practiced hospitality with sinners that in this body God made the blind see and the disabled able, that in this body God strengthened weakened hands and straightened crooked legs, that God touched the untouchable lepers and welcomed the unwelcomable lawbreakers, that in this body, this dark-skinned Palestinian 
Jewish body. God hugged the hurting and He held little children. And the thing is, is because God had this dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish man's body from Galilee, God's own disciples didn't understand him. His family couldn't explain him, and the religious leaders couldn't stand him. God was called a drunkard, labeled out of his mind, rejected by the religious right, and lambasted by the religious left. You see, the thing about this embodied God is He didn't show Himself to be, quote, almighty, as we often think of this. Wielding power, literally to move mountains or throw lightning bolts, but rather this all-too-human act of living and then dying. Say dying. See, death is the only thing that all men and women have in common from the beginning of the world throughout all regions and cultures of the world. That's the one thing we have in common. Like, doctors say one out of one people die. Like, that's how it works. Like, and Christ reveals what it is to be God through the only thing that we actually have in common. Do you understand? Christ reveals what it is to be God through the only thing that we actually have in common. He does this not simply by just to dying, any kind of death, but in dying, but by the way he died. Had Christ revealed what it is to be God in another way without dying? By being rich and powerful or poor and outcast or being simply a dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body? He would have excluded some people. And there would be groups of humans that would have nothing in common with him. But in his death, God shows solidarity with all humanity. God's body shows solidarity with everybody. In his death, he conquers death. And through his death, enables all men and all women everywhere to use our own mortality to actually have life. See, what I mean is that this is the heart of theology that Irenaeus and the early church understood. For us, it may seem like it's just a conversation that we maybe not even want to have, but the early church had to defend this, and we're so far removed from it, but we are so so swarmed by this idea that bodies are negotiable. That bodies are genuinely negotiable, that if a body takes another body, that everybody's negotiable. And so if you sit here and you think, what is he, what is he saying? You've got to think through how it all works. How it all has implication. Had Christ revealed it in any other way, we wouldn't know. But the crucified and risen Christ is proclaimed by the apostles through the words drawn from Scripture is what it means for God to be God. And it's what it means for humans to be human. See, God is revealed in humanity, and humanity reveals the beauty of God. Death had no claim over Jesus, so He genuinely went voluntarily to His death. Conquering death from death, making him the first true human being as God intended humans to be. In Paul's words, Christ became the image of the invisible God because Christ brought humanity and divinity together by living, dying, and living again, making mortal life a new kind of immortality. Christ shows us what it means to be truly human, to walk with God in the fullness of God's image. And the scriptures teach 
that we are created in the image of God. To feel, to think, to heal, to laugh, to play, to dance, to hurt, to sing, to eat, to drink, to suffer, to die, to live a fully embodied existence, not to make little of the physical in favor of the spiritual, to celebrate the body in all of its wonder, from its pigmentation and color to its way of growing and its way of dying and its way of decaying. It's all a part of the beauty of humanity. And if you think about it, we oftentimes talk about how frail and weak our bodies are, but our bodies are not as frail as other bodies in the created world. And yet we take this low view of our own bodies and our own our own presence. And you know what happens when we have a low view of of our own humanity? We don't live as Christ lives as the truly human one, as the one who shows us what it means for Jesus to be Lord over a human. We don't live fearlessly in the face of life, and so we then don't live fearlessly in the face of death. We're too afraid to die. And that makes us too afraid to live. And then we're too afraid to love. Because what if love costs us our life? But it always costs us our life. So Irenaeus, he was being taken under the Roman guard to be martyred for his faith. To be killed. And he was beloved by the Christians in that city. So he had to write them and he had to beg them to not interfere with his coming trial. To not try to keep him alive by bribing authorities. So while walking slowly to what was going to be a gruesome death, he said, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over the ends of the earth. I seek Him who died for our sake. I desire Him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a what? Human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion Oh, my God. Listen again. Do not wish me to die by finding a way to get me out of my martyrdom. Do not hinder me from living by stopping me from being martyred. See, like compared to how we usually talk, in Irenaeus' world and the way he saw Christ as human, life and death are reversed. I think this is what Jesus meant. Read it with me. John 11, Lazarus is dead, right? Listen, read it. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And so Jesus is asking, do you believe this? And I'm not sure we do because we don't know what to do with our human bodies. That's my point. We don't know how to die because we don't know how to live. And I'm suggesting that we need to learn how to live. We need to learn how to be alive in these bodies because that's what it allowed Irenaeus to truly live. We would do well to rethink how we think about being human. And when we make mistakes, we don't say, well, I'm only human. When we love well, we say, well, I'm only human. When we laugh hard, we say, I'm human. 
When we eat, drink, and we be merry, we say, I'm human. When we make a mistake, we say, I'm fallen and I'm learning what it means to be human. Being human isn't merely being prone to mistakes. It is reflecting the glory of God in our lives as one made in his image, crowned with glory and grandeur. Being human isn't something to escape simply because we view it as temporal and broken. The life that gives life to our mortal bodies will give life to immortal bodies. Yes, I said bodies. When Aaron told the kiddos that when Jesus comes again, we get bodies, she meant it. This is what Paul thought. So we're going to take our cues from Paul. Now, he hadn't been there at this point, right? But I'm going to think he had something to say. When in his letters, he sits in prison, coming to the end of his life, says, our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say it's dual. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we look forward to a Savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our, say it, humble bodies so that they are, say it, like his glorious body by the power that also makes him subject to all, also makes him able to subject all things to himself, that in the return of Christ, we get new bodies. When Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected in the same dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish body. Nobody thought Jesus resurrected and said, dude, you look, uh, you look a little whiter than normal. Like, they didn't, they didn't comment on that. Like, they, they, his body was real, but it just wasn't in our imagination wheelhouse. We don't know how Jesus would have had a real body and be able to walk through walls. Because we don't have the imagination for that. That's a whole other conversation for another day, isn't it? Jesus had this very real embodied existence, so much so that he ate fish. It didn't fall out. You don't hear that. Like, he, like that didn't happen. That would have been gross. And the apostles would have been like, we're out. Like, when he ate and drank, it didn't leak through. That's how we imagine bodilessness. But Jesus wasn't bodiless. He was bodied. And for us to think somehow that we're going to shed these bodies to turn into this sort of, sort of thin, psychic soul that floats around, that's just, that's not the deal. And it's because we think that that we devalue this, and we, we think that because we devalue this. Dude, when I get my new body, it's all six-pack. It is awesome hair. Like, I'm going to look like Matthew McConaughey. You'll be like, hey, Matthew McConaughey made it after all. No, that's Fred. That's just Fred. That's just him. I'll be shirtless like Matthew always is. That's the deal. We're getting new bodies. But the thing is, because we're getting new bodies, let's value the bodies we have now. When you buy a car, do you just start driving the car thinking about the next car you're going to get? You know, you just bought this car that you wanted. I know some of us are like, yeah, because I had to buy that used car. Look, man, my car doesn't have a door handle, so I don't even want to hear any. I have to climb through my car to get in. Hey, but, but I'm not sitting here and thinking about the new car. I still like my car. You don't buy a new car thinking about the next new car you get. If you do, you got problems. Hopefully you don't. And you don't think of being buy a house thinking about the next house you get. You don't eat food thinking about the next meal you're going to eat unless it's banana pudding. There's more banana pudding. You don't think of it. You think about what it is you have. That's an embodied existence. Then why do we treat our bodies and our lives the same way? We live this life kind of checking out, waiting to go to heaven when we die. And so we're too afraid to live. And we forget that we actually always live. We never really die. We just change neighborhoods. And we get new bodies. 
We step from one life to another. We transition. And God, I think, gives us that promise so that we'll live now. Now. And so that we'll value bodies now. All bodies. Whether there are bodies with legs that work like everybody else's legs or brains that are typical like everybody else's brains is not the point. There's still a body and a life and a brain and a heart and a soul and a spirit resides in that body and it animates that body where through that body love can be found, where through that body a touch can be given, where through that body work can be had and things can be created, where through that body the world can literally be shaped. And lives can literally be molded through that body. That's beautiful. We're the only bodies doing that kind of thing. And that is the body that God came and revealed himself in. So all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do this morning, to challenge how you think about human beings. Beginning with you. And maybe at least we will let go of the phrase, I'm only human, when we make a mistake and realize that it's because we're human that we should be learning how to make less. I'm only human. is isn't a phrase to say with resignation or disappointment. Rather, a phrase to be said in gratefulness and joy. We need to renew our, renew our minds about how we think about our humanity. Why? Because we've come to know how much God loves and values humanity because He became one to show us what it means to be fully human. And so every week we gather, we gather at this table where we take in and receive the body of Christ in this bread. We take in and receive the blood of Jesus in this cup. We receive the bread and the the cup that points us to the very real body and blood of Jesus. And we do it as embodied people so that we will live an embodied Faith, one that loves God and neighbor in tangible, actionable ways, not through Facebook posts and tweets and emails and words, but through embodied expressions of tangible, felt, seen, heard love, just as God did for us.